sitting out on our front porch in the evening, a lot of times people walk by talking on their phone. Sometimes it takes a while to figure out they're talking on their phone because they've got an earpiece and it just looks, looks like they're walking down our street talking to themselves. But um, what's interesting about those phone calls, uh, which happen with some regularity, it's, it's, a, it's a very informative thing to sit on our front porch in the evening, but um, you, you pick up what's going on on the other side of those calls even though you only hear one side of the conversation. So uh, the other night, there, there was a man walking by, and, and there was no doubt about the fact that he was in very significant trouble with his wife, and he was out walking around the block trying to sort this out. He passed a few times as he, as he went around, and, and, and they seemed to be making progress each time he went by, but, but you could tell based on the one side of the conversation that he was in significant trouble, uh, significant trouble with his wife at home. Um, but, but we get this, from one side of a phone call, uh, often we're able to discern the, the, some sense of the fullness of what's going on in the, in the total conversation. And as we read the letters of the New Testament, uh, there's a sense in which it's a lot like hearing that one side of a phone conversation. Uh, so, for example, in places like uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, he'll speak about certain diets and days. Uh, and, and we know from that that on the other side of that letter, uh, there are those who are making regulations about eating in specific ways and celebrating certain festivals. And they're, they're adding that to the gospel in such a way that's not profitable for them. So, so we only get Paul's side of the conversation in Colossians, but that's enough to tell us a whole bunch about what's going on on the other side of the call, so to speak. And as we think about this next section in Hebrews 12, we have one of these kinds of places where we only hear one side of the interaction, but that one side of the interaction tells us some really important details about what is going on in the, in the hearers of Hebrews' lives. And, and we see this in verse 3, for example, where, where we have the preacher speaking to his first audience about not growing weary and giving up. And then we have it down in verse 12 again, where this similar kind of language is used when he tells them to, to, uh, to strengthen their tired hands and weak knees based on this truth that he's been giving them. And, and so in both those verses, uh, based on the, the one side of the interaction that we're privileged to as we read the letter to the Hebrews, we're able to pick up this aspect of what's going on in the lives of the first audience of Hebrews, just like we would as we listen to one side of a phone conversation in recognizing that, uh, that while uh, the preacher or the hearers of Hebrews have endured some significant affliction because they followed Jesus, so they've had property seized, all those kinds of things, and we also know they've been a bit spiritually lazy in their gospel understanding, all of these things are going on, we also are able to pick up the fact that with all of that going on, these Christian believers are just tired. They're weary uh, amid all the various tensions that they're facing, whether it's physical affliction or this theological temptation that they're dealing with. Uh, they're also just apparently really, really exhausted. In fact, the language that's used in this passage was described by, by the commentator Guthrie as, as language which depicts a person who's become incapable of action through sheer exhaustion. That's the, the, the weightiness of the words that the preacher chooses to use here. Uh, so, so in their life of faith, we see these believers, they're just tired. And, and as we're honest about things, being tired in a life of following Jesus is certainly something we can identify with at times. It's actually very refreshing to hear the preacher talk about this. Uh, probably we've experienced something similar in our, in our own life of faith at some point where we face you know, various pressures because we're following Jesus. So maybe it's at school and some of the pressures that are coming to us with regard to education, or maybe it's, it's pressure that this there remaining faithful to Jesus in the context of, of having people we care about thinking we're really foolish for going in these ways. Um, or maybe it's pressure for following Jesus with regard to, to, to morality in our professional situations. That can, that can certainly leave us worn out. 
And, and, and so we know facing pressure in the midst of being faithful to Christ, whether it can come, certainly can serve external affliction, whatever it may be, the pressure that can come certainly can serve to fatigue our faith. It can just make us weary. And, and based on the one side of the conversation here in Hebrews, we can be sure that this first audience of Hebrews is, is in that fatigued condition in their own context. And because the preacher of Hebrews is a good pastor, like we've seen so many times throughout this letter, and because he is uh, still concerned that his audience will be trained well in what it looks like to live this life of faith, they need to be living by faith, uh, he gives them help along these lines. He gives them help in order to, like verses 12 and 13 say, in order to help strengthen what's weak, in order to lift them up so that they can keep persevering. Uh, because he's already told them to run back in chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. So there's always, already been this call to exertion. And with that call to exertion, he's also prepared to acknowledge the significant experience of exhaustion in these believers' lives. And he knows they need this help if they're going to keep going. And, and so, uh, just like it's helpful for them as we work through what's here, we can actually find a great deal of help for ourselves, especially if we find ourselves, whether it's currently or, or maybe in the future, or as we reflect on our past Christian experience, we can find ourselves fatigued in the faith, and a passage like this comes along and helps give perspective to that in such a way that we're lifted up and energized and able to run with a kind of refreshed energy. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, verses 3 to 13 this morning, and, and we'll, we'll just put it under the broad heading, re Renewing Help for Tired Runners. That's, that's what the preacher is working out here, uh, Renewing Help for Tired Runners. And, and he gives them these two main helps in this text in order to help rejuvenate them. And, and the first one is there in verses 3 and 4, uh, which, which will come from a little bit of a strange angle, but we'll see it's actually very, very helpful as, as we get into it. So, so in verses 3 and 4, we have the preacher there encouraging these Christians to calculate the extent of the hardship. That's what he's telling them to do. Calculate the extent of the hardship. Um, so, so I'll just read 3 and 4 again so they're fresh. Um, the preacher says, For consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So uh, here in verse 3, the preacher's moving uh, really from that statement that he's made about Jesus back in verse 2, speaking about Jesus' endurance and faithfulness as he, as, he, as he died on the cross and the events that are recounted there. And then in thinking about Jesus and his endurance through all the events surrounding the cross, the preacher now calls his audience to especially consider, consider this hostility that Jesus endured. And, and it's that word translated considered that's interesting there. Uh, for one thing, it's the only time that Greek word appears in the New, in the New Testament. In fact, it doesn't even appear in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Only time it shows up in Scripture. But it is a word that's used in contemporary literature fairly regularly uh, to indicate a kind of a mathematical counting up or, or careful assessing of something, this consideration word. So, so for us, it would be in, 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 in conversation to say something like, um, I, I need to weigh that in my mind, or you need to, to weigh this thought out. It would be that same kind of idiomatic uh, phrase. The, the consideration in verse 1 is a calculation term. And what the preacher's wanting his audience to calculate, uh, what he wants them to tally up, if we can put it that way, is the significance of the hostility that Jesus endured from sinners. 
So in other words, the preacher is wanting these Christians to bring to mind a full and complete count of Jesus and the, and the totality of the pains he endured as he uh, went, to, went to the cross and, and purchased their redemption. And, and the preacher goes on to, to explain why he wants his first audience to think about really the, the far-reaching hostility that, that Jesus had to endure. He wants them to calculate that well, verse 3, so that they won't grow weary and give up which is an interesting purpose to have in this. What, what, what do we make of that? How, how does this help us not grow weary and give up personally by considering the deep and significant pain that Jesus went through? Well, what's the connection that he's, that he's making here? How, how does this properly calculating this hostility against Jesus help us move from this place of being weary to this place of renewed energy and, and strength for running? And, and that clarification actually comes in verse 4. We have the answer to that question where the preacher says, ultimately, it's a perspective thing that he's trying to provide for these Christians. Because in struggling against sin, he says to them, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Okay, so, so, so shedding your blood, we can know that was a, a common expression of the day that, that could mean something metaphorical as, as well as literal. So it, it could just mean, you know, you haven't, you haven't gone to the furthest extreme. The, the phraseology appears in different kinds of literature, whether it's a sporting event or whatever. I mean, it's kind of hyperbolic. You're not, you're not bloody in, the, in, in this endeavor yet. Uh, but at the same time, it's a phrase that would speak to, to martyrs and their conditions. So both of those elements are involved in this shedding of your blood kind of terminology. Um, but, but with both of those in view, the, the immediate point that the preacher wants this congregation to understand is that they have not yet gone to the furthest extent in their own contending with sin just yet. So, so in terms of contending against those who are acting sinfully toward them in the, in the public affliction that they're facing, like we read about in verse 10, or in contending with the sin and temptation that remains in them, uh, like we've already seen a little bit, we'll see some more of it in, in the end of chapter 12 and in verse 13, in this contending against sin, this struggle against sin, they haven't uh, resisted to the point of, of shedding blood. So, so, so as we put this together, what the preacher is saying in your fight against sin, in your seeking to be faithful in the context of sinful things inside tempting you and outside pestering you, uh, on the one hand, you haven't gone as far as Jesus went, first of all. That's a big point. Consider Jesus. You haven't gone as far as He went. And then, you haven't also gone as far as you may still have to go. There, there's still room there in terms of what it looks like to live by faith. And, and so we hear this, and, and we do think this doesn't seem like a very gentle way to speak to tired people. Doesn't it immediately seem that way? How, how will this kind of talk about, about resisting actually be renewing? But, but, but even though this, this may sound a little more harsh than refreshing, we, we understand, we know the preacher well enough to know that he knows this congregation and he knows that what they really need, first of all, to compel them forward is a dose of gospel realism if they're going to be re-energized in their faith. It's kind of like we do in parenting from time to time. Or maybe your wife has to say this to you sometimes. I wouldn't know anything about that, but, but maybe some of you do. Uh, it's like we say to our kids after something really unfortunate happens and they're really upset. So, so, so maybe uh, uh, it's something that's genuinely difficult. You know, a favorite toy breaks or, or something like that. It's very sad and discouraging. Or maybe pizzicato stopped delivering even though you thought they were still delivering and that makes you sad and fussy. Whatever it might be. We, we do have to come along sometimes and say, um, you, you know, 
in life, there are hard days, and this isn't one of them. We have to be able to say that as parents very oftentimes. What happened isn't fun. What happened isn't easy. What happened isn't diminished in any way. But we have to understand that there are hard days in life. There are things that are really going to be pressure-filled, and this one doesn't actually count. It's not that high up on the scale. Maybe you said something like that in parenting, but but it's an important word. And and how much more important is that word for us in our life of faith? It's, It's just important to have perspective renewed in terms of how difficult things really are or are not in our life of faith. It can be hard to persevere in the faith. The social pressures that are there are very real. They're very real for us in our time. The internal temptations to sin are there, and those are very real too. But the preacher is bringing perspective as he says, there are really hard days. I mean, think about what Christ went through. There are really hard days, and these are not them. Calculate what Jesus endured. Calculate that ridicule and rejection, the physical torture, the cosmic price he paid for sin. Add all that up. And then think about how much it's really cost me to follow Jesus to this point in my life. I mean, remember the end of chapter 11 in Hebrews? Some were sawn in two because of their faithfulness. Think about what it's really cost me to follow Jesus to this point in my life. Uh, How much have I really suffered in terms of being his disciple, even in the context of Hebrews with, with property seizure and prison time, he's still making this statement. Is, is that really anything compared to the suffering uh, that Jesus went through in order to guarantee the hope that's ours? So, so he's just trying to put things in perspective for us. We need to consider all of this, he's saying, because as we do, all of a sudden that perspective starts to take hold and, and, and my exhaustion of soul which is a literal translation of of that grow weary phrase there. My exhaustion of soul is all of a sudden relieved and I'm renewed in not just the truth that, that deep costliness is a genuine expectation in the Christian life, but we're also renewed in a proper perspective regarding how, how relatively mild things currently are for us. And just like this applied to the first audience of Hebrews, it does apply to us. There, there are bad days but, but let's be honest, relatively speaking, th- this isn't one. This isn't one. And, and as that perspective is brought to bear, all of a sudden, exhaustion is replaced by renewed energy, and I can keep running. Just like the child realizes, well, actually, the, the, whole, the whole reality of my life is not as wrapped up in that uh, toy still working as I thought it was supposed to work. This is just perspective giving. So, so the preacher comes like that encouraging parent and he, and he comes uh, in order just to, just to help us rightly calculate the extent of hardship. There are hard days, there are high costs for following Jesus, but we haven't resisted sin yet to the point of shedding our blood. So, so I wonder this morning if that's just something that can be helpful for us as we, as we meditate on what it means to follow Jesus out of the book of Hebrews. The struggle against sin, the affliction that we can face in being sinned against as, as we've known the reality of, of ridicule or varying levels of, of difficulty because of our commitment to Jesus. Those hardships can loom. They can, they can actually be, be big shadows that kind of go over us and make us heavy-footed in our race of faith. We can know about those kinds of things. But then we look to Christ, uh, we look at, at what Jesus tells us even in terms of what we ought to expect in following Christ, and we think about these things. And all of a sudden, the nature of our immediate affliction is put in proper perspective. It doesn't mean that the immediate affliction is in any way demeaned. It doesn't mean that it's not diminished or disregarded. It's just properly calculated, given the reality of Jesus' own sacrifice and given the extreme implications of what it can mean to follow Him. 
Sometimes if we're fatigued in the faith, it's just important that we calculate the true extent of the hardship. There are really costly and afflicted days, and there are many Christians who know those kind of extremely costly and afflicted days. There are Christians who know that right now in parts of the world. What the writer of the Hebrews is helping these folks understand is you're not quite in them. In fact, this audience is about to be in them, given Neronian persecution. They're not in them, though, right now. And we're not in them. So we look forward to things that are going on, and we recognize that uh, that there could be days of of greater difficulty still ahead. So so putting this together, we, we just recognize renewing help for tired runners. How does it come? Well, it comes as we calculate the extent of the hardship. There's a perspective that comes into play there. So that's the first help he gives them. The second one... Uh, is there for us in verses 5 to 11, where he calls them to remember God's fatherly discipline in their lives. Uh, so, so it's not just that we need to calculate the extent of hardship, but we have to bring something to mind with regard to God's fatherly disciplining activity in, in our lives. Um, so, so if you look at verses 5 to 11, um, we see that, that a partial cause of this weariness for these Christian believers is sourced in, in their memory problem. They've been forgetful. The preacher points this out directly in verse 5 when he asks them, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he goes on to quote Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, where that exhortation is given, where that wisdom literature speaks to the disciplining activity of God in the lives of His, of his children. Um, so, so what we understand to be happening here is that, is that in the midst of, of dealing with temptations to sin uh, on the inside, as, as these first listeners were, and in the midst of dealing with opposition that's sinful against Christians from the outside, like they also were, in the midst of all those struggles, these Christians have forgotten that God purposefully works through circumstances of affliction in order to train His people, just like a father exercises discipline in the life of their own child. You see, part of the reason these believers are discouraged, the preacher is saying, is because they've only halfway categorized their hardship. They've seen it as bad, as difficult, which of course it is, but they've seen it that way with no hope of God's good purposes being carried out in what's going on. They haven't attached that reality to their situation. And instead of understanding that, that even in the midst of sinful activity, even in the midst of the, of the ridicule of neighbors and all of these other things, in the midst of that, not only is sin occurring on the part of those opposed to the gospel, but God is also active to bring about His fatherly good for His people. He's training His children in that. And the first audience of Hebrews has forgotten that that element can be true in these circumstances of affliction, that the presence of other sin and the formative purposes of God can be existing in the same situation that's happening in our lives. But much like what Joseph had to remind his brothers about. Do you remember that at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, where his brothers are very concerned that, you know, Joseph's going to kill him. After all, think about all the things they've done to him. But Joseph has to reassure them, and, and, he, and he finally says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph has the wisdom to see that both things can go on in that, in that difficult circumstances. Two very different purposes. Brothers intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Uh, and in that, we see God, God still working. And so again, that's what these believers needed to remember if they're going to be renewed. Circumstances of affliction in the Christian life, uh, they're not only to be considered in light of the wrong that others may be doing, um, but, but they're also to be considered in light of God's fatherly discipline being worked out in our lives, and, and He works those things out in order to help grow us up. And so it's, a, it's along those lines that the preacher moves from quoting Proverbs 3 about God's fatherly discipline to making these two points of application. 
And his first point of application revolves around the, the status of these believers. So, so we see this in verse 7. He says, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, in other words, all children would receive that, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the point's being made that the, the hardship this first audience is facing is part of God's discipline in their lives, and that disciplining fatherly care of God is actually tangible proof that these believers are really children of God. Something that uh, it's a privilege that Christ actually purchased for them that he's referenced earlier back in Hebrews chapter 2. This discipline that exists in our lives is there to prove that we're not illegitimate, we're not separated from God, but instead we've been gathered into his family as his children. Only fathers, uh, children, only fathers who, who don't discipline their children, he's making this point, they're, they're not being very good dads. A, a good father is engaged in his children's life in this way. It proves that they're his kids. And so, and so just think about how this perspective is renewing for a life of faith. Um, think about it on, on the social level we've seen in the book of Hebrews. We read how these Christians are facing you know, public insults, deprivations, these different things because they're following Jesus, especially back at the beginning of their faith, the way the language is there in chapter 10. At, at the beginning of their faith, they endured some difficulty, and that's what's uh, kind of caused them to go back and face this temptation that they're going through now. Uh, but, but in that context, we can see how the fatigue of faith can really set in. Because when we're seeking to be faithful and, 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 and being faithful even as more trouble may come to us, where can our mind so easily go? Well, well it goes in those, in those times uh, to places of weary discouragement with that kind of gnawing sensation that, that, that uh, works at the back of our mind saying, maybe God isn't really in this for me. Maybe God is, is gone in these circumstances. After all, if God were really there for our help, you just think of these first years, we just started following Jesus, we're believing in Him, we're willing to do anything for Him, we trust Him as the one uh, who, who saves us, and now we're going on, and what happens? It seems like God isn't there at all for our help in our Christian life. So we put ourselves in that place of these first Christians, it's no wonder discouragement could set in. They're publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions in chapter 10, verse 33. Where's God in all this? How can this go on? Given, given all we're going through, God must be gone and not interested in us at all. Which is actually the same thing uh, that the psalmist deals with in Psalm 77, if you remember that one, when he says, in, in the day of trouble, so he's obviously got some trouble of his own, he says, when I think of God, I groan. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? If that's not a spiritual concern that leaves us weary in our life of faith, I don't know what is. And in the middle of hard circumstances, when no relief is coming, it can seem like God is not answering our prayers like we desired Him, him to, and it seems like He's not there at all. But, but what the preacher here is helping this congregation with, which is so significant, is he's helping them understand that actually the exact opposite of that is true in the midst of your affliction. Hardship doesn't mean that God has forgotten about us or separated Himself from us. Instead, we endure suffering as discipline. We go through those times realizing that those aren't times where God is actually distanced from us, but instead, He's as close as a good dad could ever be. God is engaged in training us in a way that actually proves the legitimacy of our status as His children. We, we, we can't forget the truth of God's fatherly discipline in these ways. Seasons of hardship prove our sonship. 
So, so the church father, Chrysostom, he put it so well. And I, let me read this to you, what he says. He has a wonderful sermon on this. On this thing. You can probably find it online and read it. It's so good. But he says this. It is those things in which they suppose they have been deserted by God that should make them confident that they have not been deserted. It's the very circumstances that make us think, left to ourselves, that God is gone, that actually help confirm the fact that God is active for us as He brings us along because it proves that we're His children. And so, and so we can just reflect on that. Are there things going on in your life? Are there things going on in my life where we're seeking to be faithful to Jesus that bring about a level of difficulty which just leaves you tired because it seems like God's not bringing relief? We all have those circumstances. And then this is such an important element of truth to keep in mind if we're going to be energized in this race of faith that we're called to run. Those circumstances aren't mere hardships that leave us in a frustrated place wondering why God isn't acting, but instead we're, we're remembering under a passage like this that those hardships are evidence of God's fatherly hand in our lives and He's making use of them as, as training tools. He's bringing us along to maturity. And, and it's this training element which the preacher brings up next uh, based on Hebrews 3. Not only talking about our, it proves our status, we're God's children when these things are going on, but he also focuses on this training element next, if you look at that, uh, because not only do we need to see God's fatherly discipline in our lives during times of hardship as evidence that we're His children, but we also need to see that this activity of God in our lives is purposefully formative and that He's using these things to grow us up in faith which is what verses 9 to 11 make clear. So, so the preacher there, if you look at that, he's talking about how human fathers discipline us. And what does he say? We respect them for it. We respect, so, so our earthly fathers, they, they discipline us. They act in corrective and formative ways toward us, and we respect them for it. At least we eventually do. So the preacher says, shouldn't we submit all the more to the father of spirits and live? That, that father of spirits language. Uh, actually brings us back to places like number 16 where Moses and Aaron refer to God as the God of the spirits of all flesh. It's, it's a way for the preacher here to distinguish between our earthly fathers and the discipline they give and, and the superior fatherhood of God. He's, he's father of our spiritual existence, not just our biological existence. It's a way of, of, of bringing out the bigness of God's fatherhood in our life. So, so he's saying, just like we respect our earthly dads who discipline us in order to train us and who, by the way, are by no means perfect, Shouldn't we also submit to our Father in heaven? In other words, shouldn't we arrange ourselves under? That's what submit means there, that, that word translated submit. Shouldn't we arrange ourselves under this fatherly discipline of God as He cares for us? Because while our earthly dads disciplined us for a while according to what seemed good to them, what's His point here? They're just, they're just men, our earthly dads. They're, they're, they're finite in their engagement and discernment and all those kinds of things. They do their best maybe, but, but it's nothing compared to God who disciplines us for our benefit with His, with His great informative purpose of having a share in His holiness, bringing us along in a way that reflects His perfection and goodness as we're being renewed ultimately in the image of Jesus Christ Himself. And so the text goes on. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful later on, however, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, so you see, we're being told that while we face hardships, and those hardships can certainly come through the sinful hostility and actions of others, while we face those things, God isn't absent from those situations, just leaving us to flounder pointlessly through the struggles, but instead He's very active in those times in order to train us in His way of life, His way of holiness. 
In fact, this is the exact same program that Jesus himself went through in his earthly ministry, like we read about back in Hebrews chapter 5, where the preacher said that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus went through this training school, that the preeminent son in his earthly ministry, Jesus was trained in obedience to God the Father through the discipline of hardship. It's a profoundly formative means where God brings us along. So much so the psalmist can say those things without this perspective that seems so strange, but when we have this in view, they start to make so much more sense. In Psalm 119, uh, for example, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or then a little later on in that, I think it's verse 73, the psalmist says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. There's this direct connection between God's disciplining us in our lives and the connection to our own growth and what it means to follow Him. And so as we, as we think about this, we just have renewed perspective ourselves. It's, it's possible to face trying times and have the entirety of our focus be on relief from that trouble. And then, of course, relief is good. We, we do want relief. But like this first audience, relief became such a priority for them that they were actually considering leaving off trusting in Jesus to get that uh, cultural, social reprieve that they were desiring. And in so doing, what was the result? Well, it didn't leave them in a better place, but it actually left them. In verse 13, it talks about them uh, be, being lame there. It's actually the same word translated as paralyzed in the gospel. They, they, they were, they were uh, out of alignment in their faith. Their faith became sickly. And, and so as hardships come, a text like this reminds us that the difficulties for a Christian believer not only prove that God's active in, his li- in our lives as our Father, but it just proves the fact that He's also active to bring us along formatively in terms of His training, which might be painful at times, but ultimately, like all righteous discipline, the peaceful fruit of righteousness is what is produced. So, so we're not ultimately the worse for the discipline, but like children who have attentive parents, we're in a place of peace and righteousness aligned with God's way. Which just leaves us checking ourselves by these kinds of things. I'm asking myself, am I arranging myself, are we arranging ourselves under the discipline of God, or am I working very hard to duck out from under it? It's interesting to read this passage in our contemporary cultural climate and and maybe it's just because of the other reading I've been doing, but, uh, but, but especially as we recognize in our contemporary time the, the rising pressure for us socially as we follow Jesus. So th- this is very real for us. We, we know uh, there's, there's growing social tensions for us as Christian believers right now where we live with regard to sexual ethics and so on, and, and that unless there's revival, that, that's only going to get worse as, as time goes on. That tension is going to be more and more acute. But it's also interesting in our current climate that as pressures rising, particularly around biblical sexual ethics, we see Christians often going in one of two directions under that tension. Either they, they give in to the pressure, and so, uh, for example, we read about whole denominations affirming same-sex marriage, that kind of thing, or they get very indignant and angry that things have come to this in our society. They get very upset. How can this be? It's got to be done away with. Don't let my kids hear any of that language. And, and there's this anger that's there. So, so on the one hand, there's a moral uh, capitulation to the ethos of our time. And then on the other hand, there's this moral malice, can we call this outrage, this anger that's present there at the ethos of our time. Those two things are going on all the time among Christians. I mean, if it's not the news that makes that clear, seven seconds on Twitter makes that clear. These two things are happening constantly. But very rarely do we find a group that's seeking to be trained in holiness by all that's going on. 
Isn't that interesting? I'm going to duck out from under the disciplining hand of God by capitulating. I'm going to duck out from under the disciplining hand of God by being very angry about how this needs to go away right now. I can't believe this is happening. Very rarely do we find groups that are seeking to be trained in holiness by this. This this social ethic, it's certainly an expression of hostility toward God in His good way, but in the midst of that hostility, aren't we taught in a passage like this, aren't we taught that God is active even for our continued growth and holiness in such times as these? These times aren't lost to God. And in fact, under a passage like this, we ought to say God is active for us, especially in times such as these. Isn't this proving our, our, our sonship in His kingdom? In, in the midst of, of, of ethical crumblings around us, rather than folding to the pressure, or being spun up in moral vitriol, Scripture teaches us to view these days as days of gospel discipline, training us in righteousness, which brings about this, this fruit of peace in our life. So, so, so what does this mean for us? What are we being trained for? We have to think about these things. Well, think, just thinking about our context in general. Well, aren't we, taught, aren't we taught to view the world through evangelistic eyes as these kinds of things are going on? What does it indicate to us when these people are so far afield of what's true about the way that God made us? What does it t- tell us most of all? That we need to be angry with them? No, it tells us they need Jesus and we need to be witnessing to them. Right? We're being taught by, by the social pressures to be renewed in prayer and recommit ourselves to the efficacious power of the Scriptures and the Gospel. That's the only thing that's the power of God to salvation. We're taught to recommit ourselves to that. We're disciplined in that way. We're disciplined in the exercise of compassion and love toward those who are contrary to us. If that's not a Gospel ethic, what is? So it's these peaceful fruits of righteousness that begin to grow and flower in us as we arrange ourselves under the disciplining hand of God in times like these especially. We're not ducking out and capitulating. We're not ducking out and just being angry. We're sitting under them and being trained by them to be Christ's ambassadors out in the world around us. And we're resting in the fact that we're not maintained by by some kind of moral overarching paradigm and culture. We're maintained by the king of the universe himself. And so we can go out in that kind of confidence. And so, so we live in times that are tense for gospel people, but these times also, they, they prove our sonship. They prove our Father in heaven hasn't forgotten us, but He's there training us. And they prove that He is bringing us along in holiness. So, so we don't need to fear and run away from these kinds of things, but we can arrange ourselves under God's fatherly care and say things like, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Help us be faithful. Would you just give me the mind and will and eyes of Christ to live out in your world by faith? Help me in this way. Help us in this way. And so, and so in all this, uh, we're to be encouraged when weariness sets in. That's verses 12 and 13. That's the point of all of this truth that's been here. Therefore, he says, here's the conclusion. This is why I've said all of this to you. Strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, what is paralyzed, may not be dislocated but healed instead. So the preacher quotes here from Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4, uh, telling us that these truths are truths that ultimately renew us. They heal us. They give us energy and stamina to keep going in the faith, uh, which is is exactly what we need even in the times we currently live in. This This is renewing help for tired runners. And so, and so we make good use of this. We calculate the extent of the struggle. We consider Christ and the hostility He endured. There are hard days, um, but things have been and very well could be much harder. We haven't shed our blood yet. And we need to remember God's fatherly discipline. Hardship doesn't mean God is gone. It means that we're actually His legitimate children. We're grafted into His family, and He's bringing us along in the way of life. And with those two things in mind, 
we have the perspective we need to continue running the race. We keep going with the energy and the strength that He provides. After all, we're following Christ who went first, and this is the exact same way that Jesus lived out faithfully under God in His own earthly ministry. And so we run with it, and we're thankful for it. Let's pray. So, oh God, would you renew us in this truth this morning? Give us the energy we need to run. Uh, we know that ultimately you work in us what is pleasing in your sight, as we read at the end of Hebrews. And uh, we ask for that kind of help now, knowing that you're ultimately the one who gives us the strength we need to press on. And at the same time, uh, we do feel our weakness and dependence. And so renew us in these ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.